Welcome back to our podcast, Dental Study Bites Patient Case Reviews. It's Jess and Neha here. For those of you who don't know us, we are currently fourth-year dental students at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, we talk about patient cases and incorporate high-yield board facts to help students prepare for the INBDE. Today is part two of the full mouth rehabilitation case. We discussed part one and endodontics in episode two, so make sure to check that out as well. This case was provided to us by Dr. Velasquez, a current prosthodontic resident at the University of Minnesota. This case was quite involved because it required endodontics, prosthodontics, and periodontics residents to collaborate. Today we will be talking about the prosthodontic aspect of this case and what to remember for the board exam. Let's quickly review the background information of this case. The patient is a 46-year-old male who presented to urgent care clinic for tooth pain and swelling in the lower right. He received a referral for a root canal along with a seven-day course of amoxicillin. Medical history is non-contributory, and the patient is ASA-1 status. The patient had not visited the dentist in 10 years. If you remember from the last episode, number 30 was diagnosed as a previously treated pulp and symptomatic apical periodontitis and was retreated with non-surgical root canal therapy. A prosthodontic consult was done and general intraoral findings included generalized severe attrition of occlusal surfaces, edge-to-edge occlusion, maxillary midline shifted to the right by one millimeter, and supraeruption of the mandibular lower incisors. Occlusal analysis revealed a lack of anterior guidance with present posterior interferences in the protrusive movement. Right and left lateral obtrusive movement revealed group function and non-working interferences. So what do these movements mean and what do they tell us? These movements are part of Pacelt's envelope of movement, which represents the range of motion of the mandible. This includes the centric occlusal position or the position of best fit between the upper and lower teeth and the border's positions which includes the extent of movement of the mandible in all directions. A quick high-yield board's fact about centric occlusion or or maximum intercuspal position is that in this position, all teeth contact two opposing teeth except for the mandibular central incisors and the maxillary third molars. Yes, exactly. So the protrusive movement is when the lower jaw translates anteriorly as far as possible and the condyles are in the most anterior position. The edge-to-edge position, which is a tooth-determined position, is when the incisal edges of anterior teeth meet. Exactly. Working movements are also known as lateral excursive movements or lateral obtrusive, which refers to the movement towards the same side as the mandible moves in, and in which the condyle of the working side simply rotates. In this movement, the other side is called the non-working side, as it is the side that's moving towards the median line. The condyle of the non-working side translates down the articular eminence. For example, a right lateral movement would mean that the working side would be the right side as as the mandible moves to the right side, and the right condyle rotates. The non-working condyle, or the left condyle, would be translated down the articular eminence. Perfect! I know the jargon can get confusing sometimes. These movements will give the clinician an idea of TMJ health and help plan restorative treatment with respect to the potential interferences. These aspects are important in this case as they found many interferences and severe wear. Moving forward with the treatment, options consisted of a mix of extractions, crown lengthening due to severe attrition, crowns, and upper and lower removable partial dentures. As the patient was given various treatment options, he decided he did not want extractions and removable prosthesis. It was then decided to move forward with restoring all the teeth with zirconia crowns, with crown lengthening, cast, post, and core, 
and endodontic therapy where needed. Another topic we should discuss is crowns. To start with Neha, what part of a crown preparation does the operator have most control over? That would be the taper of the crown. What type of material for a crown is often associated with fractured toughness? That would be zirconia. When thinking about cementing a crown, what are some different cements you could use? There are six different types of looting agents or cements. The first three are zinc oxide eugenol, zinc phosphate, and zinc polycarboxylate. Zinc oxide eugenol is known to soothe the pulp, however, it does inhibit polymerization of resin. Zinc oxide eugenol is often used as a temporary cement for temporary crowns, so it is critical to fully clean off your preparation when removing a temporary crown before cementing the permanent crown. If you don't, it can inhibit the resin of the permanent cement from fully setting up. Zinc phosphate actually irritates the pulp and often gives off an exothermic reaction. Finally, zinc polycarboxylate has a chelation to calcium and often minimal pulp irritation. It likes to bind to calcium. Can you explain the next three? Sure. The next three are glass ionomer, resin-modified glass ionomer, and resin. Glass ionomer adheres to enamel and dentin. It also can release fluoride as an added benefit. Resin-modified glass ionomer has a higher strength and lower solubility than glass ionomers. It cannot be used with all ceramic crowns because resin glass ionomer cements expand over time with water absorbed. Lastly, resin cement has the most comprehensive strength and bond to dentin. So in summary, zinc oxide eugenol is the most soluble and the weakest cement, whereas resin cement is the least soluble and the strongest cement. If I were to cement a zirconia or a metal crown, what cement would I likely use? You would be using a looting cement, so glass ionomer or resin-modified glass ionomer. As an added benefit, you get fluoride release and less post-operative sensitivity from using these cements. What would you use if you were cementing an Emax crown or veneers? You would use a resin cement due to the chemical bond to dentin. For aesthetic cases, like a veneer, would you want to use a dual cure or a light cure cement? Most likely, you would want to use a light cure cement. If you used a dual cure cement, that cement could change color over time as it cements, which would change the color profile of your restoration over time. Some other factors to consider with preparing crowns are biological width, retention form, and resistance form. The average biological width is 3 millimeters, and this measurement includes 1 millimeter of supercrestal connective tissue, 1 millimeter of junctional epithelial attachment to tooth, and 1 millimeter of depth of gingival sulcus. Exactly. Retention form refers to the features of the preparation that prevent removal of a crown along the long axis, whereas resistance form refers to the features which prevent removal of a crown by apical, horizontal, or occlusal forces. Both forms are crucial to understand and can be incorporated in many ways. Taper is the angle of convergence, with the most ideal being around 6 to 10 degrees. The more taper a preparation has, the less retention it has. Similarly, the height of a prep has a positive effect on retention. Typically, it's 3 millimeters for incisors and premolars and 4 millimeters for molars. If you have a short clinical crown and have inadequate height on a preparation, you can add features such as a buckle groove for retention and proximal grooves for resistance. Nice. Now that we've talked about crowns, it would only be natural to talk about bridges. What would be considered ideal characteristics for an abutment of a bridge? When I think about this, I often think about a tooth that would be really hard to extract. So a tooth with a long and divergent root, multiple roots are better than a single root, you want good bone support as well. 
What are a few examples of pore abutments? Those would include anodontically treated teeth and compromised teeth. Preodontally compromised teeth are also not useful abutments. What are the two types of bridge connectors? You can have rigid and non-rigid connectors. Rigid is just like it sounds, cast in one piece or soldered together. Non-rigid, similarly, is not rigid, so it is used when you can't get a common path of insertion. You need at least how many millimeters of connector for your bridge, Neha? You need at least three millimeters. And what are some different types of pontics? You have about five main types. There's the modified ridge lap pontic, hygienic pontic, ovate pontic, saddle or ridge lap pontic, and the conical pontic. The modified ridge lap is aesthetic and used often in the interiors. It is probably the most used pontic. The hygienic pontic is often used in the posterior mandible and it offers good hygiene but poor aesthetics. The ovate pontic offers the best aesthetics but requires surgery and a good ridge. The saddle or ridge lap pontic is not used due to bad hygiene. Lastly, the conical pontic is used for molars and has decent hygiene and aesthetics. So now that the crowns are prepared, we can talk about impressioning. What are some different types of impression materials? Impression materials fall under six broad categories. Condensation silicone, irreversible hydrocolloid, reversible hydrocolloid, addition, additional silicone, polysulfide rubber, and polyether. Now let's go through them one by one. It can be a lot to remember. Condensation silicones create an alcohol byproduct through the setting reaction and can cause shrinkage of the impression. These impressions should be poured in about 30 minutes. The next one up is irreversible hydrocolloids, which set in about 3 to 4 minutes and should be poured within 10 to 15 minutes. The reason for this is because the active ingredient is potassium alginate, which is a highly inaccurate material. Something important to remember for hydrocolloids is that they can undergo imbibition and cineresis, which can distort the impression after it has been taken. Imbibition is the absorption of water and causes the impression to expand. In contrast, cineresis is the expulsion of water molecules from the impression and results in the impression shrinking. Yes, these are pretty high yield factor boards. I remember imbibition by imagining SpongeBob with a bib and swelling up as he absorbs water. Another thing about irreversible hydrocolloids is the trisodium phosphate controls their setting rate. Awesome. The next category are reversible hydrocolloids, which are formulated with agar and are particularly temperature sensitive, changing between solid and liquid at different temperatures. This material is highly accurate. The next category are addition silicones, also known as PBS. This material produces the best fine details and can be poured days later. A disadvantage, however, is that the reaction can be inhibited by sulfur in latex gloves or rubber dams. On to the next category, which is polysulfide rubber. You have about 30 to 45 minutes to pour them up, and they are moisture tolerant. They create water byproducts, too. Last but not least, polyether materials are stable, but easily influenced by water and humidity. You have about 60 minutes to pour them up, and they are typically very stiff, so you can often break things off of your cast when using them. So that's about it for the impression materials. We covered a lot of occlusion and fixed prosthodontic concepts that are important for boards today. Join us for the next episode in which we will talk about removal of prosthodontics, an option that was presented in this case but ultimately not pursued. Thank you!